today's topic is about Judaism and punishment. Does God punish in any way and how does he? And what does he do it for? Really the question is, if he's so kind and, you know, he's infinite, he's infinite in his goodness and in his kindness, so then why would on earth would he punish me? That doesn't make sense. So that's really what I want to get into is the concept of punishment. And I'm doing this because we're now entering the three weeks, Shiv Asabatamuz, and then the ninth of Av and the destruction of the temple. So I really want to get into this concept of does God punish and really make people come out of this um, to the listeners as well that I'm recording separately to make people come out with this with a refreshing feeling as opposed to the feeling that we normally get, which is depressing. There's no hope. I'm here to be doomed. And um, but but really to get refreshed and understand like Judaism really is amazing and so powerful. So the very first thing is that you hope that God does punish okay so the question is of tonight is does god punish and i want to say you better hope he does because we as humans always demand justice on everybody else besides for ourselves okay uh have you ever heard of the saying they should get what they deserve anyone heard that saying before why do we say that because we deep down believe that people deserve a certain sense of justice right we all hope that hitler um, did not just die and get away with whatever he did, right? We Deep down, we believe and we want evil to be uh, paid back with. We want them to be punished because we expect this world to be a just world. And whenever we hear of a serial killer or a child abuser, um, a murderer, right? What do we say? We want them taken and we want them taken quick. Some people will talk about the death penalty, but definitely... Everyone will be say, uh, everyone will say, lock him up, right? And if they say, keep him out and let him be, then they are not asking for justice in this world. Agree or not agree? Okay, so we kind of want justice on everybody else. That's my point that I'm getting to. Uh, the the only person that we don't really want justice done to, um, it besides for. Um, besides for God doing it to anybody else, is, is ourselves, right? We would never want, if I was a teacher in a school, for all my kids that I'm teaching for the rest of their life to talk about all the times that I messed up in my classroom and I wasn't exciting. If I was being a teacher, I would want all the people that are listening to me to remember me for the good things I did. But we, um, and, and that would apply to everybody. If they were a teacher, they would want an educator. They would want to be remembered in the good aspects of what they did. But it's not like that when um, if, if, if we're talking about somebody else, right? We demand the best teaching from our teachers when we were growing up. We demand the best parenting from our parents when they were growing up, when we were growing up. We demand from everybody else perfection, um, besides for ourselves, if we make mistakes, we'll say, okay, fine, whatever. I made a mistake. I'm not perfect. No one's perfect. You know, we, we kind of justify ourselves all the time, but we demand perfection and goodness from everybody else. So what I'm trying to get to is we deep down want in this world justice. We want this world to have some sort of 
punishment for those that do wrong. Agree or not agree? Anyone agree with that? Okay, so, so what I'm trying to say is don't be afraid of the concept of punishment because we want it ourselves. You want the concept of punishment. We all want this concept in the world. That's the very first thing. So before we even get to how God works, just understand that we as humans want consequences in the world. We want punishment in the world. Okay, so now I want to answer the myth that some say, which is that everything's, everything we do in this world is fine and there are no consequences with our actions or the statement that there is no heaven and hell in Judaism. It's true that Judaism in the Torah doesn't directly talk about it because Judaism is meant to be a relationship. It's meant to be a connection between us and God. And what kind of relationship would it be if every two minutes I'll be talking about hell and heaven to you. So we definitely do believe that there are consequences and the Torah is filled of it. Look at the very beginning of the Torah. What's the first mistake that happened? Adam and Eve, right? What happened to what happened after Adam and Eve? Immediately he was taken out of the gan the garden of Eden. What does that tell me? Oh, there is a consequence for our actions. Next story, Cain and Evel. The guy killed Abel. What happens? Cain stays alive. But he is now excommunicated, so to speak, spread around the world, doesn't have a place. And again, we see consequence, so to speak. God is punishing Cain for his actions. If you look throughout the Torah, you will see the flood, Sodom, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were rewarded, but sometimes they, were, they made mistakes. I mean, Abraham and Jacob, right? The Egyptians, the, the story of the Egyptians. Well, they were punished. Oh, so... God does punish. Amalek, the Amalekites that came to kill the Jews, they were punished. The Jews, when they complained in the desert, they got their punishment immediately. Sound depressing. The golden calf, right? They did the golden calf, so they lost their ability and their powers that the Jewish people had. If we go through the story of the Torah, it's literally a story of consequences to people's actions. That is the that is the fact of Torah. That's the fact of the story of the Torah. So if, if anybody believes that in some way that there is no consequence for our actions, they are wrong. How do I know? Because the whole Torah is about consequences for your actions from beginning to end. Adam and Eve made a mistake. Look what happened. The next one, Noah. I, I, you just go through the, the flood, Saddam. And then you start with the Torah. Then again, there are consequences for our actions. So to, to believe that there's no consequences for our actions is wrong. And it's wrong because it's wrong from the Torah's perspective. And it's also wrong because deep down within every human being and with outside of the Torah, deep down within every human being, we want people to receive the consequences of their actions. We want justice. We want a court system. We want people that are murderers and abusers to be taken away and put in, put in place, right? So <coughs> if that's what we really want deep down, then that is um, the consequence. That is that is there and it's there for a reason and that's need, that needs to be there. So we have to first accept the concept of punishment before we even, we even get into how does God punish and does he and, and what does he do. But the, the first point is, does he? And the answer is yes, he does.
Okay? I'm just, a, I'm just debunking that myth that there's no such thing as being, um, seeing the consequences of our actions. What's the greatest, so to speak, consequence of the Jewish people's action? Or what's the biggest mistake a human being can make? Does anyone know? Sarit, do you know? What's the biggest mistake, the biggest mistake a person can, can make? Kill someone. Um, suicide. You think suicide, murder. Well, it's true. All these are the outcomes of certain actions. But what's the source that causes somebody to eventually come to a point where he'll do murder? What's the source? So we might say uh, jealousy. Okay, but if we get deeper to, to the essence of evil, right? So we have the evil inclination. There's a deeper inner evil inclination. But there's something else that causes us, yes. Not loving yourself. Good, we're getting there. Loving yourself too much. Wait, I got it. Okay, got it. hi. Yeah, there's haughtiness. Yeah, that could I also it, be. I got it. So we're getting somewhere, yeah. You're talking about Yetzir Hara and Sinat Chinam, Nahon. So that was the cause of the destruction of the temple. But um, it's true, hatred comes from somewhere. And hatred is a, is a source for many other problems. But what would cause me to be hateful? I'm going to tell you something that's really interesting that I think is a big cause to many of the problems in society as a whole. And it is the lack of appreciation of the things you have. Okay. So jealousy, like a form of jealousy. It's a form of jealousy. And it's really a lack of, it's basically connected to everything you said. Joseph said, lack of happiness from within. It means you're not, you're not contemplating on the things you have within. I'll tell you why this this is so because the Torah tells me that be very careful when you go into the land of Israel. Before the Jews went into the land of Israel, they were told be very careful before you go into the land of Israel because your hearts will be haughty. And that goes into Sarit's point, right? And you will start saying, my strength and the power of my hands did all of this. Do you know, do you guys know what the only, there's only one bracha, there's only one blessing that is a requirement in the Torah. Does anyone know what it is? Um, would it be? I know it. Go on, Sari. Uh, saying Birkat Mazon. Was that what you're going to say, Amri? That was the, the right answer. That is the right answer. The only requirement wow. in the Torah wow. is Birkat Hamazon, the blessing after the meal. Question, why is it not a requirement before the meal? You know, it's, the Torah only requires me after. Wait a second. If I'm hungry, shouldn't I? That's when I need God the most. Shouldn't I thank him for the food that I have? Wait, wait, Rabbi, can you rewind for a second? Hold on. So it, Birkat Hamazon is the only blessing that's actually like required in the Torah, so I'm not yes. To Don't worry, but you should say all of them because many uh, sicknesses come into the world by us not saying mea brachot a day, a hundred blessings a day. So you want to say these blessings both because it makes you happy from within and because lots of good can be brought onto you and avoid lots of bad energy. So the blessings are good for you. Don't worry. They're, it's good for you. But, but, from the Torah's perspective, there's actually only one requirement in the Torah to actually make a blessing. 
And that is Birkat HaMazon, like Sarit says. So you tell me, why would it be a mitzvah to say the blessing after the meal and not before? Doesn't it make sense to say a blessing before the meal, even more so, because that's when I'm hungry and I need the food? It's it's harder to say it after. Maybe Good. it's easier to just walk away and just like go back to whatever I'm doing. Good. One of the commentaries, Rashi explains on the verse, that the Torah is teaching me that the greatest challenge for humanity is the challenge of satiation. And, and in that place uh, where you are satiated, where you are full, where you are satisfied, the, the place of wealth, the place of comfort, that is the place where you need to bless Hashem. You need to say thank you. More than in a place where you're hungry. Why? Because when you're satisfied and full, that's when you can deny God. That's when you're in the most vulnerable of places. You get, you get pride that kicks in. You'll get many challenges that will kick in that will um, challenge you within your growth and connection to God. So that is the reason why um, the blessing after the meal is a requirement and not the blessing before. So what I'm trying to show you is that the greatest challenge, and this was a challenge that the Jews were told, before you enter the land of Israel, be very careful because you're going to go into a land of honey and milk and success and the Jewish people are going to feel very connected to God and there's going to be lots of Judaism going on. And then what's going to happen? You'll take it for granted. This is the challenge of the world. This is the challenge of life. Wherever we live, we lived in one place. We got too comfortable there, right? And, and we got too comfortable. What does that mean we got too comfortable? We started saying, I made all of this. And that is the cause for hate, for pain, for murder, for denying God, for everything. From the beginning to end, the, the cause to all of the problems is because I start saying, I did all of this. It's all me. And that ego that kicks in is what kind of takes over the, 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 uh, our comfort. It makes us deny God and lose our identity as Jews as well. So that really is the message of, um, of the Torah when we enter Israel. Hey, look, there's a big consequence here. The greatest consequence is that you'll be thrown out of the land, and that's what happened to us twice, when you go into the land of Israel. Why? Because you'll have hatred for each other, like Omri said. Why will we have hatred for each other? Because of Because when we go into the land of Israel, we'll say, it's me. I did all of this. I took myself. Uh, thank you, uh, Alison. Love you from the moon to and back. I love it. Thank you. So, uh, but <laughs> it's a great cup. So anyway, but that's the that's the message here. When we enter the land of Israel, the greatest consequence, the greatest danger to us is that we'll say that we did everything, and the consequence was that we'll be thrown out the land of Israel. What does throwing us out of the land of Israel do? Make us realize that. Um, I just said that when we go into Israel, our biggest danger is that we'll say, I did everything. So when Hashem does, throws us out, what does he remind us? 
You should remind. You should remember that uh, everything is from above. Everything is Hashem. Like you didn't do anything. Look, we are now not owning the land. We are not uh, taking over. We are not the ones that live in this place and have uh, all our powers to to influence the world like we used to. And that that reaction is to remind us that hey, don't take your Judaism for granted. Don't take what you had for granted. This is the big danger, by the way, of us in Israel versus the life in diaspora. The Jews in diaspora feel the joy of the Jewish people much more than the Jews in Israel. It's a very interesting uh, concept. But over time, I've seen this with many Israelis themselves. They leave Israel and they feel the connection to the Jewish people much more. Only when they are here in outside of Israel. Why? Because you take the Judaism for granted. It's like, oh yeah, Hanukkah. And then, oh yeah, Passover. That's every, it's so many holidays, but it's all the time. It's part of the culture. Once you leave that and you don't feel that culture anymore and you come to a, a, a foreign land, you're in diaspora. So it's not the mainstream of your lifestyle. Uh, you start feeling the lacking and the, you the realization of the importance of it. You see the values. You see the values that Judaism really has taught to our society when you're not with it. And that's such, a, that's such an important idea. So that's really the idea of us going to... I just wanted to point out that the biggest consequence to us going in Israel, or the biggest danger, the sin, so to speak, of us going to Israel was us saying that we did everything. And the result was we are reminded by leaving Israel again that we did not do everything. And diaspora gives us that reminder. Okay, so I want to uh, also mention that in our prayers, we, meant, we talk about consequences of our actions. Does anyone know where in our prayers we mention, if we do good, we will get this, and if we don't do good, we won't get this? Pretty much everywhere. Shema. Shema. Everywhere. Omri's got it, and so has Joseph, right? Shema, in the second paragraph, says... If you do listen to all the mitzvot, then what would happen? Good stuff. You'll get all my blessings. You'll get you blessings. What will it be? The land will be prosperous. There will be uh, produce and you will have wealth and success, so on and so forth. So we clearly see that there is this conce the concept of uh, consequences for our actions in this world. And we also see it in the silent prayer. In the silent prayer, we say, Hashiva shoftenu kvari shona. In the, how many, what's the silent prayer? What number is it? It's called the? Shmona. Shmona Esrei, right? Esrei. So what does that mean? What number is Shmona Esrei? 13? 13 attributes. 13, 13 is no, Yud no, no, Gimel, Shlosh no. Esrei. Shalosh is, no. is three, Gimel. No. So 13 will be Shalosh Esrei. 18. 18. So there's uh, 18 blessings. 18 attributes. In, we're going to speak about the 13 attributes. There's 18 blessings in the silent prayer. Okay, one of the blessings is that we want all the uh, enemies and all those that are trying to hurt us to not have success in their ways. Al tikva. They should have no hope. Laminim velamalshinim. Al tikva. We actually pray that they should stop. That is actually the 19th blessing. 
If you look at the silent prayer, there's not 18 blessings. We call it 18, but there is actually one more, which is We want evil to stop. Okay, so why is it called 18 if it has 19 blessings in it? That's kind of strange, right? Why is it called 18 if there's 19 blessings? Because we actually hope in the future that that 19th blessing will be removed. The ultimate place will be where there's 18. And the 19th blessing was something which was added later on. Uh, it's to stop those that are trying to hurt us. But we actually want it and we hope that it's actually removed from the prayers eventually. But one of the things that we do have in the silent prayer is which means we want God to be our judge. We want to return to a place where there's real justice again. Meaning... That again, we see that God does bring consequences to our actions. It's very simple, and it's actually one of the 13 principles of our faith, okay? The Maimonides, in the back of the tractate of Sanhedrin, and the Talmud of Sanhedrin, lists off 13 different things that Jews need to believe in. Did you know about this? Does anyone know about the 13 principles of faith? Can anyone guess one of them? Memory knows him. Does anyone know? No. Can anyone guess one of the principles of faith? Just one. That Mashiach is coming. Okay, that's good. That's one of them. That Mashiach will come eventually. Yes, there are 13 different things that we need to believe. Well, guess what? I'm talking about punishment. So that could be one of the reward, one of the principles of faith. That there is a that there's karma like uh, good. There's yes, there's sechav onish. There's reward and punishment in this world, and not just in this world, but really in the world to come. Okay, so that's one of the thirteen principles of faith. So Maimonides in the back of the Talmud of Sanhedrin, of the tractate of Sanhedrin, which is in reference to courts, Supreme Court, which is the place of bringing justice. Right at the back there, he says that one of the beliefs that we need to have is the belief that we will be rewarded for our good actions and people are uh, punished for their bad actions. There are 13 principles of faith. The first is the belief that God exists and he is perfect and he's infinite. Um, he is one. That's the second belief. The third belief is uh, that he will not be affected by any physical occurrences. Uh, the belief that he is eternal, okay, that you, that the belief that we must only worship him and no other gods, the belief that God communicates with man through prophecy, mankind through prophecy, the belief in the primacy of the prophecy of Moses, that belief in, in the concept that Moses was the greatest prophet of all, the belief in the divine origin of the Torah, we have to believe that the Torah came from God, uh, the immutability of the Torah is number nine. The belief in God's om, uh, omniscience and providence, basically that he's involved in every moment, not just in the creation of the world. Number 11 is the belief in the divine reward and retribution. Yes, there is, so to speak, the concept of reward and punishment for our actions in this world. And do we want it? Yes, we want it. Of course we do. Right? It will be insane to believe that Hitler gets away with what he does scot-free and 3,000 years of Jewish history 
people have got away with what they did silently, because many of them did do it silently, scot-free. That will be very, very sad to believe that everyone got, did all the bad and got away with it. And all the people that did good uh, never just lost out. Okay, that's not a belief in Judaism. We have to believe that there is reward and retribution for our actions. Number 12, like Sarit said, the belief in Mashiach that will come eventually. And number 13, anyone guess? What's the last one? Omri, wake up. I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> is it about the temple? Uh, well, we're getting, uh, not, not really. But it's to do with the future. Because we just said Mashiach. What else happens after Mashiach? Does anyone know? Well, you well you you go to Alamaba or and or you build the third temple, right? Once every third temple, then there's the resurrection of the dead. That's one of the beliefs of Judaism. Like when you plant a seed in the ground, it rots from nothing and forms you a beautiful tree. Eventually. That Zohar explains that there's a certain part of the human body that never dies, no matter what happens. And that will eventually develop back into the human being that was once. We do believe that Rabim Mishne'afai Yakitsu, it says in the book of Daniel, not everybody will wake up in the resurrection of the dead, but most people will. So that's another whole class. Each one of these points, by the way, of Maimonides, of 13 beliefs, is a class on its own, and it's amazing. When you dig into them, it's amazing. But right now, I'm giving you the class on punishment and reward. Okay? So the 11th principle is, this is what Maimonides says clearly, word for word. The 11th principle, which is what is to do with reward and punishment, Hashem, Yitbarach, uh, uh, the one of blessing, gives reward to the one who does the commandments of the Torah and punishes the one who transgresses its prohibitions. Prohibitions, And the great reward is the world to come. And the strong punishment is the person is cut off. Now, what does it mean in the world to come? Now, now we're going to get into the meat and I really want to get into this book called the Nefesh HaChayim, which was, it is a Kabbalistic book, and it was written by Rabbi Chaim of Vilajin. And he wrote this book between the years 1749 and 1821. Uh, that's when he lived. Sometime during that time, he, he lived between 1749 and 1821. And when you read this book, it's really amazing. And he goes in at great length to explain the question and what does it mean that God punishes? Okay, what does that really mean? And the big question, which is, if God, and one of the beliefs of God is that he's infinite, which means he is all-powerful, he's all-loving, he's all-knowing, right? So if he's all-loving, why would he punish me? That means his love is infinite. That means it's more than all the love of every father and mother put together in a box, for every child that exists in the world or ever existed in the history, put it all in a box. You will not get as much love in that box as you will from God. Hashem is infinite in his love. He's infinite in his good. If that's true, so then how can he punish? What's going on? So the Nefesh Chaim actually asks this question. Okay? But before I get there, I want to um, just tell you how reward and punishment works, okay? So, here goes the great point. 
Okay, so this is going to be philosophical, but stay with me. It's going to be worth your while. Hashem did not need to create us in any way. How do I know this? Because I read it in the Derech Hashem, the book of the Ramchal. Now, how do I know this? How do we know, according to Jewish teachings, that God does not need you in any way? Doesn't need you? Didn't create you because he needs you. How do I know that? What's God? What is he? We just said he's all... Perfect. He's all perfect. He's all loving. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. So if he's infinite, why does he need Omri in any way? I mean... Have you ever thought about that, Omri? So I I need you around, but, but, you know, God says... Uh, you know, what do I need this guy for? That's what he could be saying. Doesn't, Only he doesn't. Doesn't, doesn't every person have a mission in this world to yeah. spread a lot of positivity and ripple and like create a ripple effect? Of, okay, you know, so let's say you do. World? Let's say you do. You you are the hero of 2020. You create the vaccine, and you save the whole entire world. You make millions of dollars, of course, and then you give it to uh, good people. To, because you don't keep it to yourself because everyone will get angry with you for making money. So you, you give it to someone else and, and then you're the best person in the world, okay? You change the world, let's say. I mean, you do change the world, but let's say you created the vaccine and you did that and it was evident to you that you changed the world. So let's say, let's say you did that. Does God need it? Does God need this world? He doesn't need anything. He's all powerful, all knowing and all infinite. That's one of the 13 principles of faith. So if he's all-powerful knowing and being, why did he create me? And the truth is, he didn't need to. He only did it because he is good. And part of being good infinitely is to do good. Okay? Not just he's good, he does good. And for this reason, he created us, doesn't need us. It was his choice. But he wanted to do good, and he didn't need to, but he did, he did want to. So he, he created us so that he can do, uh, so that we can receive the goodness of his good. There's no other good besides for him. He's infinite. So if there's going to be something he wants to give you, there is nothing because he's infinite besides for him. So the ultimate place of goodness is to be connected to him. What does that mean? I don't know because I'm not, I'm still alive. So I have no idea what it means to be connected to an infinite being. But imagine you being connected to someone famous, right? And then realize that that person's really just a human being. And then recognize, imagine getting to understand the entire universe of all that existed ever and all that ever will exist and every thought and moment and heartbeat and vein and synaptic connection in the brain, everything that ever existed, right? And the person behind that, wouldn't you like to have a private meeting with that, with, with the person behind all of that? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't you be cool if you got to sit right next to that source of everything? So it's not just because it will feel good for you, but that is the only thing that is good. So God, that's infinitely good, created us. And in order to be good, to do good to us, he didn't need to, but he did 
because he's good infinitely and to be infinitely good is to give good as well. And the real place of goodness is to be close to him. Now, he could have just created us without putting us into this miserable world, Omri, right? And then we would have just got the good right from the beginning. Why did I need to go through this misery of 70 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years or whatever it is in order to receive this good? Couldn't you have just given it to me right from the beginning? And to this, the answer is Nahama de Kisufa. It's a Kabbalistic idea, which means the bread of shame. Have you heard of this before? The bread of shame is the concept of what would happen if you constantly gave a poor man his bread. He never was able to earn and make bread for himself. How would that person feel? Hmm. I'll give you a hint. It's called the bread of shame. He would feel a little helpless? <laughs> yeah, he'd feel a little helpless and a lack of independence. There'll be a certain sense of shame that he cannot create the bread by himself because you are just constantly feeding him and he is not creative within himself. There's a human need to be creative. That human need, by the way, is because we're created in the formation of God. I hope you're all following me. It's a lot of philosophy here. But it's really important to understanding why we're here in the first place. Because God could have just created me right from the beginning, given me this good. He didn't need to put me through this world, go through life in order to receive the good. And the answer is because we have to choose good. If we were in this world without choosing good, then we would go through what we would call the bread of shame. We wouldn't enjoy the reward fully. To enjoy the reward of being close to Hashem is to be compatible with Hashem, where we choose bad over good. We make our own choices, just like God makes his own choices. And therefore, we can be similar to him by choosing the right choices over the bad ones. Does this make sense to anybody? Okay? Kind of? Eitan, you get it? Carla, you get it? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense what you're saying, but also then what's the point of angels? Because they receive all this good and they don't need, I guess, like in a sense, food like we do. Very so good don't, question. They don't get Very good question. And the answer is the angels have no significance in comparison to us. They don't even get close to the levels that humans can get to, according to Judaism. They are only there. They are only created as energies for us that we created. Again, angels literally are energies that we create. What are angels? Flapping wings little, uh, with, with a nice stick flying in the air? What are they? We're talking about spiritual worlds. Angels are messengers. They are messengers based on the actions that we do in this world. So we actually create angels through our actions. It says that when we Every, whenever we do an action, good or bad, an angel is created. And when a person passes away, all these angels accompany you. You'll be facing billions, an army of millions of different beings, or whatever they are. And these are a, a tremendous amount of energies that you created through being in this world. And they are your... They're your um, defendants or your uh what's the other word your attorney or or your uh prosecutors, prosecutors. 
We all got it at the same time, right? They're either your, meaning you, and this is what the Ramchal explains, uh, sorry, this is what the Nefesh Chaim, this book of Reb Chaim of Elajin explains, is that the sin is, in his language, right? He says, in his language, I'll just tell you his language, your sins, the sin is the punishment. Hachet hu onsho. The sin that we do is the punishment that we get. So it's very similar to the concept, like Joseph was mentioning, of karma. Very similar to that concept. So anyway, before we actually get to the angels, the angels are things that we create. They have no power compared to the power that we have because we could choose. And therefore we can ultimately get to a place of reward that no one else can get to, closeness to God, because we are compatible to God much more than anything else. Okay? So that's why we came into this world. We have free choice. We could choose good over bad. Angels cannot. And when a person passes away, he gets the reward of his actions based on the fact that he had choice. Okay? There's much, much more to this, but I'm just giving you the general point. Why we're here in this world? And the answer is because we have free will. And what does that free will mean? It means that when we uh, pass away, we can actually have chosen good over bad and therefore be more compatible to God and therefore receive the goodness of God, which is the only thing that's good, really, because he's infinite. Okay? I'm going to show you the language of Rab Nefesh Chaim in a second. I'm going to tell you the language. I'm going to translate it. There's no English translation, so I'm going to read it in Hebrew and then slowly translate it for you because it's so mind-blowing. When I read this, I was like, I need to make a, a whole class out of this. This is so refreshing because normally whenever you think of God, you think of punishment and pain and right that's the language that's given off today in our culture because we have the wrong idea of what god is right the idea of god in judaism is that he's an infinite being oh that changes everything we don't materialize him the minute you consider him as an infinite being so then everything needs to be translated differently the concept of of his love that's infinite needs to be understood there's so much more that needs to be translated so let me just quickly go into some points okay there is a statement in the Talmud. I hope you can all hear me well still. There is a statement in the Talmud which says, Scha mitzvah bahai al-maleka. It's a Talmud in Kiddushin, which says that there's no such thing as really getting rewarded in this world. There is no such thing as reward for your actions in this world. Now, that is a big problem. There are actually five things that the Talmud says are unique. There's five mitzvot that are unique that you get the fruits of the mitzvah in this world, but the core of the mitzvah, it, the reward of it is in the next world. Okay, the core reward is in the next world. But there are five things where you actually get rewarded in this world for doing them. Does anyone know what they are? It's added to some prayers according for the Ashkenazic Siddur. They add it in their prayer. Does anyone know what the five things are? We, we actually we also have it. But so would one of them be if you respect your parents, you live a longer life? Yes. One of them is honoring your parents. Does anyone know what else? Honoring your parents. So the reward will be in the world to come. But uh, the actual reward, but the fruits, the fruits of it, 
will be in this world. So what does it mean, the fruits, by the way, of a mitzvah versus the actual core of the mitzvah? Does anyone know? Is, is that um, like the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law? Okay, you could say that. But it's, I think it's something more than that. What's the fruit versus the trunk, the tree? The means and the ends? Okay, yes, the means and the end. The means is the tree, which gives you something. And the ends is the fruit. So the, the fruit is something you benefit from, but you never want to remove the tree. The tree is the core, right? The tree is what gives you many more fruits in the future. That's the best part, right? The fruit is what you enjoy currently, momentarily, but the core, which is the tree, that never goes. Anyway, so the, the idea of the fruit and the tree is that the, the outcomes... The outcomes of the mitzvah of honoring your parents will be rewarded in this world too. How? Well, there's many ideas. Think about it. If you honor your parents, you're, you're promised that you will have a long life. Why? Because you gave your parents a long life. So you, you're already getting something, an immediate benefit from honoring your parents in this world. But that doesn't, at the end of the day, take away the fact that we have a statement in the Talmud, which says there's no such thing as real reward in this world. That's just the fruit. The core can never be in this world. You know why? Because we said that being connected to God, right, is infinite. And he is the only, F he is the only reality of goodness. So how can you get rewarded for goodness in this world if you're connecting to Hashem, who is infinite? Do, do, you, do you get my point? You cannot really get the fruits of your actions in this world if you're plugging into something which is spiritual, if you, let's say, give uh, $5,000 to charity, okay, you could tell me that the reward should be I get $5,000 back in another way. But the mitzvah of charity is much more than just $5,000. It's a spiritual mitzvah. You're giving of yourself. You're giving... You're doing an action for your neshama, your soul. That can never be fed with money. A spiritual action can never be fed with money. It needs to be fed with spirituality. And the, the real place of that is in the world to come. That's why the Talmud says, in this world, there's never real reward for your actions. Now, this leaves us with a big question. Do you know what it is? Before we even get to the concept of punishment, I just want to get you into the concept of reward here a second. This leaves us with a big question. What's the big question? What did I tell you originally about, what did Joseph mention about Shema? Eitan's getting it. What did Joseph say about Shema? Do you remember, Sh Joseph, what did we say about Shema? That in Shema, what do we see? Uh, it talks about punishment. It talks about if you follow the commandments versus if you don't, what happens. And what, what does it say if you do follow? If you do, then you get fruits. Oh, you get the fruits of your labor and uh, good things will happen. And right, what happens? You, you'll, there'll, there'll be rain on time in the right time right. of the year and the fruits, the produce will grow. Wait yeah. a second. Does that fit in with the Talmud which says that there's no reward? In this world, does that fit in with that statement? The Talmud clearly says, 
There's no such thing as getting rewarded in this world, period. So how can Shema, every day we pray and we say that if I do good, I will receive the good for my actions. How, how can that fit in to the statement which says that there's no such thing as reward in this world? The Talmud in Kiddushin, in the tractate of marriage, says clearly that there's no such thing. It's not possible for us to get reward for a mitzvah, which is plugging into the spiritual in a physical form. You can't give me five bucks for giving away 5,000 bucks. It's spiritual. You can't give me something back a reward for something good that I do, which is spiritual, with physical things. You, it just doesn't work. I can't get... It's like giving me pennies for jewelry. I, mean, I need to get something in, in comparison. So Judaism actually believes that there's no such thing as reward in this world. If that's true, then how does Shema work? Shema clearly says that I will get rewarded in this world for my actions or punished in this world by the land not being prosperous. Nachmanides asked this question. And Nachmanides says that the promises that you will be successful in this world are only promises to make you continue to do good. We have a rule that when you do a mitzvah, you get the ability to do more mitzvot. And when you do an avera, you have the ability to do more averot. You now come in an environment which causes you to do more bad. If you do good, you're in an environment which causes you to do more good. So when so God like promises you that it will rain for doing good, that's not the reward. The reward for that is really in the world to come because in this world there is no such thing as reward for doing good. It's just to help you do more good. So Rabbi, I get yes. tzedakah and then next the week after I win the lottery. Good. But the prize is not the lottery. The prize is I get to give more tzedakah. Yes. Yes, Joseph. When we see, and this is a promise in the Talmud, Asel Asher, give a tenth of your money in order that you will come wealthier, and people see it. This is one of the things that the Torah, this is one of the only things that the Torah tells me. Test God in charity. Test him. If you don't if you want to see God, test him in charity. Give a tenth. Don't give too much because then you're not testing God. Right? Because you have to do what he says. Give a tenth. And if you see that you are able to continue surviving and succeeding, it might be hard at the beginning, but you see overall, test God, you'll see that giving money to charity actually comes back. It's one of the things that you can actually test in this world. It's very interesting. One of the only things you could test God with is, is charity. So um, what did I want to say? That... Uh, the, the concept of reward in this world is actually only to ease for ourselves the ability to do more good. When I win the lottery after doing, giving a lot of charity, that money is actually not the reward for my charity. That reward is in the world to come. But the reward for my charity is that I would be able to give more charity. Oh, you're a good guy? I'll let you be even a better guy. And that's how good people come really good. When they start doing small good things and they keep getting more credibility and more ability to do more good. And you wonder, how does but this guy do so much good? Right? Yes. I get to keep the rest of the lottery money. And you get to keep the rest of the lottery money. You don't have to give, you don't have to give more than a tenth. You're right. I'm joking. I'm joking. No, you don't have to give more than a tenth. You will get much more for giving charity and you don't have to give more than a tenth. So... 
up to a chomish, up to a fifth, which is 20%, are you meant to give? Anything more than that, you're not meant to actually give. Yeah, that's another discussion. So um, uh, that is the concept of reward, that in this world, there is actually no such thing as reward for spiritual actions, for doing good. But it's there to help us, when we do get reward, it's there to help us become better. Okay, so what is the purpose of punishment? I'm just going to quickly get into this and the concept of punishment. I'm going to read to you now the Nefesh HaChaim on the concept of punishment. This book, Reb Chaim of Elajin, and it's just mind-blowing. So I'm going to read it slowly because there's a lot of concepts that he brings. Uh, it's, about, it's about 40 words, but they're very deep and concise. If, if someone was watching the recording that I made, it's worth them just clicking into this last 10 minutes that I'm going to get into, okay? Because this is really the meat of everything. So there's a Talmud in Baba Kama, right? Which is, the t- is one of the Talmuds on the laws of monetary law. Okay? And, it, and it says like this. This is what Rav Chaim Belajan says. He actually writes this in chapter 1, uh, section 1, v- uh, chapter 12. Section 1, chapter 12, that's what he says. He says like this. Our rabbis have taught us in the tractate of Talmud, Baba Kama, the first gate of monetary law, 50a, it says like this. Anybody who runs around saying that God is going to compromise on your actions, meaning that God gives in. He lets you off. He's easygoing when we do good or wrong. Anyone who walks around with this thought that God is just going to let you off when you do wrong, Yevatru Chayav will end up that his own life will be compromised. What does that mean? There's much depth to it, but it, generally it means that he'll end up living constantly his life doing wrong and he'll, give, he'll waste his life because he always thinks that God doesn't bring consequences to my actions. The, the statement is that you can never say that God is just going to let you off. And he says it can't be that that makes sense. Because God can never just... if you, Even human beings should have that good quality. Even a decent human being should have the quality to let people off once in a while. Why can't God do that too? That's his question. Omnam hukumosha amati le'en. God does not work through punishment and revenge. You hear that? He says clearly. God does not work through punishment and revenge. God forbid, he says. That's not the way God works. However, just we have a statement that the sins chase after us, causing us bad. I do certain bad in this world. Bad energy now chases after me to try and cause me to do more bad. Why? The sin itself is the punishment. That's what he says. But it's not that God punishes or gives revenge. God forbid, he says. Because God within himself can easily just let you off. That's not... Just like a human being should let people off once in a while. But that's not how God works. He's saying that the way that the world works is, from the time of creation, God 
um, put into the world, established into the world, kol haolamot, the whole pattern of all the worlds. God already organized the orbit. He organized all the planets. He organized every star, every... There's laws of the world. And those laws never change. Okay, very rarely do they change. Right? He says that just uh, that from the time of creation, God set all the ways of the world, right? That they would literally react to certain actions of a human, whether good or bad. Every action that you do already has an impression immediately after we do the action. Each action has an impression in the world, in its root and in its source, meaning in the spiritual world, every single thing we do or immediately, that's the way that the world works, just like with physics. If I drop something, it falls on the floor, there's gravity. That's it. There's law. There's the law of gravity. There's also the law of bad and good. And that came with the world, like we have the law of gravity, like we have the sun, like we have the moon. Came with the world was the law of good and bad. Nothing to do. God created the world like that. But then he put it in that way. That's what he says. And he says, a person has to go through the process of cleaning through the impure action that he created depending on how strong he did the bad action. And through the, the, the reaction to your action, automatically you'll be able to fix all the worlds and your soul through the, the reactions of bad to your action. And this could also be fixed through teshuva, through us changing ourselves. So there's two ways that we can actually remove bad energy from us, right? That's either by us changing, by us doing teshuva, or by God doing it to us. The example that's given is like when you have a dog that's dirty. So there's two ways to have it cleaned. One is that the dog cleans himself, right? What does he do? He gets in the water and he gets out and he just goes like this. And all the dirt just comes flying off. Or we have to clean the dog. Which one's more painful? Which one do you think will be more painful? If you clean yourself or someone else has to clean you? When you clean the dog, he, he might not like that. When you, when you clean the dog, you stop pulling his hairs. You, right? It's more painful. So teshuva is always a better way of cleaning ourselves. And teshuva is there's Yom Kippur, there's different levels depending on the actions that we did. I gave a whole class once on this by Yom Kippur. Of diff, depending on our actions, there's different levels of teshuva. Basically, there's teshuva, there's suffering in this world, difficulties, not just suffering, but it could be um, difficult challenges that we go through in this world. And it could be also Yom Kippur is another form of cleaning us, of teshuva, and also death. For some situations, we need to have all four. Let's say if somebody killed someone, we need to have all four in order to really be completely cleaned from the mistake. If I do teshuva with myself, I do repentance within myself. Okay? But if I don't do repentance, it comes through God. 
And that's what he's saying here. He says, if I do Teshuvah, or I go through difficulties in my life, right? So then there's this new light that's now created, that God already set from the creation of the world. It's one of the laws of, of reality. That as soon as I do good, there's a certain light that's transformed into the world. And that overpowers the bad that I did. And that bad now is gone. And it gives me, God created me the powers to be able to remove them like the way it was when I was born before I did the wrong thing. Uh, there's actually, he says, there's a, even a new light that comes from Teshuvah, which is even stronger than when I was beforehand. Um, and that's how he says. That's what he says. He says, it's not that God does it. Automatically, God allows the nature of this world to bring that these things are done. That when you do a bad thing or a good thing, it's like the law of physics. Just like with the law of physics, when you drop something, right? The law of gravity is it will fall to the ground and let the law doesn't change so too with good and bad in this world the law doesn't change and it remains in the way it is that's how he answers the statement of understanding god he never um what we're saying is he never you can never say that god is a person that can't forgive god is a person that can't just let you off of course he can by him there's no such thing as punishment and there's no such thing as as um revenge he doesn't need revenge doesn't want to punish it's nothing to do with him but in order for us to exist in a world of free will it's part of the reality of this world that we came into and in order to receive this good we have to choose good over bad and part of it is that the reaction to good is that there's a that there's a consequence of good and the reaction to bad is there's a consequence of bad but it's not that god himself wants this to happen that's why it says that god cries when the wicked do wrong. God cries when the temple, he cries every day that the temple is destroyed. At a certain time, there's tears coming out from the Shekhinah, whatever this means, it's in terms that we can't relate to, that the temple is destroyed. When we do wrong, when, it, when your arm hurts you, it hurts God. When, when you do wrong, it hurts God, just like it hurts a father to see that his child is doing something that's not good for him. But God has to allow us to exist in this world in order for us to have the free will, it's part of the reality of the world that came to be from the time that the world was created. That's what he's saying. It's nothing, you have to separate the concept of reward and punishment from the concept of Hashem himself. Meaning, Hashem allows reward and punishment to exist as much as He allows this world to exist. From the time that He created this world, He created gravity, He created the sun, He created all the planets he created earth he created the trees he created also the reaction of good is that there's a consequence to good and the reaction to bad is that there's a consequence to bad in order for us to exist he had to have created those energies but don't think that Hashem wants them don't think that that's part of his it's just that we have to exist like that otherwise there's no ability for us to exist otherwise that is a whole new definition of punishment to me it's mind-blowing when i was reading that i was like Phew! because i always understood it that god 
if I do bad, God wants to punish me. He wants to give me the, you know, he wants to, that's how he works. That's good. And it's not like that. Actually, God's crying with you when you're in pain. That's what the Talmud says. When things are going wrong, God's crying with you. Why does it go wrong? Because it's a, it's a consequence of the actions that we have created in this world. So that's really the general uh, concept. So just to recap, I'm just going to quickly recap what I said till now, very quickly. Does God punish? You sure hope he does. That's what I said. Because we want justice on everybody else. We believe deep down in the concept of justice. We want evil murderers, uh, rapists, and so on to be child abusers. We want them to be taken into justice because we want it. So, of course, you hope that God does punish evil and reward good. Otherwise, why would we be uh, wanting to do good in this world we need that push, which is the concept of justice and good for good and bad for bad. Okay, the Torah is filled with consequences. You cannot think in any way that there are no consequences for our actions. Clearly, throughout the Torah's story, there is the concept of reward and punishment for our actions. Very clear throughout the Torah. And... Uh, we are taught also that when we would go into the land of Israel, the biggest challenge we would have is saying that we created everything. It's my strength. It's me that did it. And that's what's going to cause us to hate, to have anger, to eventually be put into diaspora. The greatest consequence was that we said that we did everything. And the consequence of it was that we were spread outside of Israel. Okay, we actually pray about consequences. We mentioned that. Uh, we actually spoke about reward and punishment and why God created us in the per first place because of the bread of shame. Remember that? The bread of shame means God does not want to just put you uh, and give you stuff uh, for no reason without actually earning it. And the way to earn God's good, because he's infinitely good and he wants to give us, is to be like him. And that's to go through this world where we choose good over evil over bad. There is no real sense of reward in this world because you can't reward um, diamonds with, uh, with pennies. If I did spiritual things, I can't be rewarded with physical things to them. So why do we know in the Torah that there are rewards for the good that I do? Why in the Torah does it say that if in this world there is reward, like in Shema, we say that if I do listen and I do mitzvot, I do get rewarded. Like I see rain and I see success. Well, that's just to help me be better, but it's not the actual reward. We also mentioned that there are five things that uh, you actually get fruits in this world and the reward is in the world to come. We mentioned only one of them, which is honoring parents. Should I tell you the rest? Okay, it's kindness, honoring parents, kindness. It's bringing peace amongst people and the study of Torah. Okay, and the study of Torah is the greatest of all. Okay, there's no real reward in this world. There's actually one statement of a Kabbalist, the Chida, who says, this is very interesting, he says it's true that there's no real reward in this world for good that I do, but there's joy for the good that I do. You always have happiness in this world for good that you do. You don't get a reward, but you promised happiness. Whenever you do good, you are happy. When you are bad, you are not as happy, period. Give some money to somebody or spend it Right? Spending is not bad, but when you give to somebody else, you're doing good, you're doing a mitzvah, you will gain a certain sense of happiness. 
So the Chida actually says, it's true, you won't get rewarded in this world for the good you do, but in the world to come, you in this world, you will get rewarded with a sense of happiness and joy. So it's worth pursuing it also in this world as well. Okay, then we mentioned uh, the Nefesh HaChayim, which says that it's not that God wants to uh, not forgive us or let us go if we do bad, right? It's not that God can't just let us go. Like any other good human being would let his child off once in a while. God can't let us off if we do bad. He says it's nothing to do with that. The, the essence of us being in this world is that there are laws. And the law of this world is that if you come here, there's good and bad that we could choose from. And it's right from the beginning of creation that that was how it was imprinted in the world, that when we do good, we get rewarded for it. When we do bad, we get uh, the consequence of bad. But it's not God himself. He, has, he actually cries when we're in pain. He is in pain when you're in pain. When the temple is destroyed, he is, destro he is upset about it. And, and that's really the reality. So um, with that, I also want to give you a sense of hope that the Talmud actually says, in minutes, a person could be mochello al kol avonatav. You can be forgiven for all of your sins. If you study Torah deeply, like right now, for an hour, that's it. You can be forgiven. It says if you keep Shabbat, any sense of idol worship, you're forgiven for. If There's many, many things that we do. We don't even realize it. If a person thinks that he wants to be better, he already removes all the evil he did in his lifetime. We can't understand it because it's spiritual terms, but the Talmud has hundreds of ways that a person can actually, in minutes, remove the bad that he did and also uh, feel the reward and the goodness of the good that he does. Okay, so that's really the class. I hope you guys enjoyed. And we have some questions, thoughts, answers, ideas. Yes, Joseph, please. Uh, one sec. Am I on mute? Oh, you can hear me. I can okay, hear you so well. My question is, so my question is in the Torah, so so many ways where uh, God punishes everyone, Cain and Abel, Korach, just it goes on and on. It doesn't seem like he's he's maybe in some certain circumstances he seems like he's sad about it, but sometimes it just feels like it's the wrath of Hashem. So the concept of wrath, and you have to understand this. Um, which is why I was saying it's more complicated, is like this. this. This is very also very important, which I was thinking to mention, but it's another whole discussion, um, which is that the more revelation you have, the more of a consequence you have in order to stay in the realm of free will. For instance, if you were living in the times of Korach, where you got the Torah and saw God, okay, okay is more is more demanded of you? Would you expect more to be demanded of you? You had prophecy. Korach was a prophet. Oh, okay. He was prophet. a Nasi of Yisrael. He was the head. So we have to understand that the levels of consequence is given according to the action of the person. According to the level of the person's revelation. What happens when we do wrong? God actually hides himself more. Why? Because uh, the, because you can't, you're now in a place where you're doing more bad, so you wouldn't be able to survive if you're in the same place. For instance, let's say a prophet, right? Let's say I'm a prophet, and I see Hashem all the time. Not me, somebody. Sees Hashem all the time. He's really connected to God. He speaks to Him, right? Prophecy is beyond 
It's it's something which we can't describe. So let's say there's a prophecy. The guy's absolutely connected to Hashem, sees him, talks to him, and then he goes and commits an act of murder. Right? Commits an act of murder. Would that be worse than somebody in 2020 that commits an act of murder? What do you think? I see I see your point. Okay, so that's that's really the concept in general, is that the greater the revelation, the greater the consequence. When we do what's wrong, God hides us straight from the beginning. Adam and Eve, he was thrown out of the Garden of Eden. The reaction to doing wrong is, He hides himself from us so that we can continue to be in the realm of free will. And I know everyone wants to sleep. I just have one more thing. So, for example, uh, Moses refusing multiple times to Hashem to become the leader. Like, so he deserved the punishment because he saw Hashem and he told it to Hashem's face, I don't deserve to be a leader. That, that was such a bad sin that he... That wasn't, that wasn't his sin. His only sin was that he hit the rock. He actually oh. said, uh, he said, That was the strength of, of Moshe. He really didn't believe that he was fitting to be the leader because he said, I'm not a man of words. Uh, he wanted to... Oh, he was you. He was humble. That was actually a great sign of humility. Uh, at a certain point, God got slightly upset with him yeah. and said, "I've already told you so many times." But in general, that wasn't a sin. His only real sin was when he hit the rock, and that's also what does that mean, right? When he wasn't able to enter the land of Israel. But that's okay. that's really the only place where uh, Moshe really sinned. Moshe Rabbeinu, our master. Etan, you have any thoughts before you go to sleep? Uh, yeah, it's interesting stuff. Like uh, with uh, Adam sinning and eating from the apple. And then like uh, after that, Hashem treats him like, it, it, like he says, where are you? And obviously Hashem knows where Adam is. But for some reason, Adam is and he he thinks like because he sinned, now he can he can hide it from God, and that's like just shows how God will relate to you on your level, and like oh, oh you want to play like you you commit a sin, like you you don't think I exist. All right, well then I'll hide from you too, you know, or I'll I'll, I'll allow you to hide from me, and I'll pretend a little bit like like you don't exist. Exactly, and you know what? That was his only way to continue to survive is to have himself hide from God because if he would still remain in the same place when we do when we do bad we have to understand if we would remain in the same place that we were we wouldn't be able to cope um, with the with the demands of our actions anymore so therefore there's more of a hiddenness of Hashem and then when we do good the opposite happens we get a much higher place of revelation and get the, the reaction to our our actions are much greater, but we also get much closer to a spiritual world, to the spirituality of Hashem, to the closeness of Hashem, to the to the being of Hashem, right? We, we get in a much higher place. The consequences are higher. That's how it works. The more you do good, the more revelation you have. The more you do bad, the more... Um, the more, so to speak, hiddenness there is, so that you could still remain in the space of free will. That's another whole class in itself. Purim, uh, Haman, Adam. It's like a whole talk on itself. But that's 
<laughs> that's really the idea. So we should we should be actually recognizing that the good that we do in our generation is greater than whatever was done throughout history. Because for us, there's so much wow. hiddenness of what it really means spirituality. We are so, so far. I believe in God in 2020 is like it's like amazing. It's amazing. Every small mitzvah that we do, we don't realize it. We think, we think, okay, you know, like I'm struggling. Life is so, what am I doing good already? I'm worthless. We don't realize the power of good in our generation. People say, if, if all the generations before us couldn't bring Mashiach, then how can the future generations ever bring Mashiach? If Rabbi Akiva couldn't do it, then you go through all generations. They're all greater than us. The Talmud, the, you come to our generation. If, if they all did it, and they didn't bring Mashiach, then how on earth can little me bring Mashiach? That doesn't make sense. There's two answers to that question. One is that if you had a bucket full of hay, and through, through generations, people are emptying out the bucket of hay. I've heard this. So then eventually there's going to be a few left, and that's what we need to do, is just pull out the last few strands of hay to empty out the bucket but that's one explanation the other explanation is because as time goes along we're further away from the revelation so small things that we do is way greater than all the generations before us greater than what rabbi kiva did greater than the chida we have to believe this this is a teaching that was given over by i think it was the chida himself or the Ariza, one of the Kabbalistic writers in his time was saying how great our actions, if we would know how good our actions are when we do good, they are so great that we would, we would just ju dance with joy. That is the, the approach that we're meant to have. Every time you do something good, you are doing things that cannot be even understood in its own ways. Like it's beyond us, the greatness of it. That's and pretty crazy. What? That's pretty crazy. Like it's amazing. saying a bracha is worth Rabbi Akiva saying a bracha a million times. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yes. That is the concept in Judaism. We are now in a time where we're so far, far away from any form of revelation. We don't have prophecy. We don't have the, the temple. We, we're so far away from what really was. You know, we, we had a million prophets. We had revelations. We have. We had such powers. We were the. We, we throughout our history, we had the greatest of the greats. Even if you look at the times of the Arizal, it says that the Arizal, who where we went to his the, in Israel, you went on the trip. We went to his mikvah, the Arizal's mikvah. He's he's buried in Safat, and he really brought Kabbalah back to the world. He lived only a few hundred years ago, and he writes uh, in his lifetime. If somebody was sick, they would come to him and he'd say, oh, I know exactly what mitzvah you need to fix. Forget him telling you you should eat this and you should eat turmeric and, and whatever. He'll tell you, I know exactly what mitzvah you need to do to fix that problem that you have. And they would do it and they would come better. He was a healer through knowing which, because you know that there's 248 positive mitzvot, which are connected to all the different limbs in the body. There's 365 negative mitzvot that are connected to the different ligaments. In the, they're also connected to the 365 days of the year, right? Because we want to be surrounded with mitzvot all days in us, all days of the year. But there's also the concept of 248365 is different parts of in our body. And we are, we are comprised of all these different things. And, and 
we don't realize that whenever we do the right mitzvah in certain areas, or if we have the right intentions, that we actually fix different parts of our body as well. Besides for the spiritual worlds and everything else, we're actually doing things in this world as well. So um, that was that's actually interesting because it goes a bit into what I was saying till now about the reward of our mitzvot in this world. It seems like there is a, a, a energy that we can plug into by doing mitzvot into ourselves that can actually heal us. But we don't have the powers anymore. The, chida, the, the Arizal used to see somebody and say exactly what he needed to do. We don't have the energy and the, the, the strengths and the abilities like that anymore. It's gone. So it's such a hiddenness, it's such a darkness of 2,000 years of, of exile. Every small good thing we do is massive, much greater than any generation before us. Anyway, okay. I hope amazing I didn't... Amazing uh, class, Rabbi. Oh, thank you, Gabe. Wow, you were there all along? That's amazing. <laughs> of course. It's so nice. Wow, I didn't know. I would have spoken differently otherwise. No. <laughs> anyway. Alright. Alright guys, it's late, I know. Laila Tov. Laila Tov, Sadiqim. Thank you, Rabbi. Of course, it's a pleasure.